Oh Lord, you have deceived me and I was deceived. Congregation of the Lord, these are the words of the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 20, verse 7. Oh Lord, you have deceived me and I was deceived. Have you ever found yourself saying something similar? Or have you, have you ever found yourself acting as if you believed that the Lord had deceived you? Sometimes we have doubts as Christians, as children of God. But deep inside, we know that God is faithful. Why? Because his word and his deeds say so. And that's even why we are here this morning. Now, another question. Deeper. Do you believe that God cannot be unfaithful? The Belgic Confession summarizes, summarizes, in art, in, summarizes in Article 1 the perfections of God. Do you believe that according to those perfections, it is impossible for God to be unfaithful? And the answer is yes. Scripture affirms that God cannot deny himself even when we are faithless. But none of us believes God's faithfulness as we ought to believe. If we had such a trust in God, we would not sin. But we sin. And so God, knowing our weaknesses, makes promises and keeps them to show us how faithful he is. So today's text speaks about God making promises and keeping them. More precisely, the text of today speaks about God's making promises to the patriarch, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and keeping those promises. So the goal of our text today is to show to us how God is faithful. And the theme summarizing our text is this. God remains faithful to his promises by multiplying his people in Egypt. God remains faithful to his promises by multiplying his people in Egypt. Our theme has two points. First, we have from the household of Israel, and then we have to the nation of Israel. From the household of Israel to the nation of Israel. Our text is in the book of Exodus, the beginning of Exodus. But have you ever wondered why the book is called Exodus? 
We call the book Exodus because it speaks about the history of the deliverance of the people of Israel, our ancestors from Egypt. It speaks of how God, with his mighty hand, brought out the people of Israel from Egypt. But in Hebrew, the book is not called Exodus. It is called the name. And why is it called the names? Simply because it starts with a list of names, as you have just read. But why does the book start with a list of names? Because the Holy Spirit wants to show us that the story that is beginning here is very much linked to the previous history, the history of the people of God in the book of Genesis, meaning the history of creation and the fall into sin and also how God made promises to Abraham. I'm sorry, I have called it story, but I should say history. It's a faithful, inspired, historical record that we have here. So, in Genesis, God made promises to Abraham. He promised Abraham that Abraham will be great, that Abraham will be the father of many nations, and that through Abraham, all the, fam the families of the earth we be blessed. Furthermore, God also promised to Abraham that he will give him a land. But we read in Genesis that Abraham died without any land. His son and heir, Isaac, also died without any land. And finally, his grandson, Jacob, who was living as a resident alien in Canaan, was forced to leave the country and go to Egypt because he wanted to avoid a cruel death, death by starvation. And the author, or the Holy Spirit who has inspired this text, also used many clues to point us to the book of Exodus to many events happening, please, to point us to the book of Genesis, to many events happening in the book of Genesis. And one of the events on which the Holy Spirit directs us is in, uh, in Genesis 32, Jacob at Penuel. There, Jacob wrestled with God and prevailed. But in the wrestling, God dislocated the hip of Jacob. And it is also there that God changed the name of Jacob into Israel, saying that Jacob had striven with God and men and prevailed. But how do I know? How do I know that the Holy Spirit here is pointing us back to Genesis? there are some clues, some indicators in the text. 
The first indicator that we have is the arrangement of the names. If you at home open your Bible in Exodus 32, uh, please in Genesis, I'm sorry, Genesis 32, you will see that the arrangement of the names here is the same arrangement that was followed by the Holy Spirit in, in that chapter, meaning each son with his mother. So the sons of Jacob here could have been grouped by alphabetical order or by age, but no, the Holy Spirit decided to group them by mothers. The second thing that we have, the second indicator is in verse 5. In verse 5, the word we see, we read all the descendants of Jacob. And in the original language, the word translate, the phrase translated all the descendants is in fact those coming from the heap of Jacob. So again, a link with Penua, the heap of Jacob. And the last clue, or the, the last clue that I will speak about is the fact that the Holy Spirit here uses the name Israel and Jacob interchangeably. At the beginning we read, these are the names of the sons of Israel, and then we read later, which came to Egypt with Jacob. And you can see in the text that Israel and Jacob are used interchangeably. So, the text wants us to think about Genesis and remember Jacob, the elect son of God, who had to move out of Egypt, the heir of all the promises that were made to Abraham, to Isaac also. Next, when we continue our text in verse uh, 5, we read, all the descendants, all those who came out of the heaps of Jacob were 70 persons. So, our text here speaks about 70 persons. But if you check in the book of Acts in the New Testament, you will see that Stephen speaks about 75 persons. Persons. Why such a, a difference, such a discrepancy? And so we know that Genesis 46 speaks of 70 people, and Deuteronomy 10 also speaks of 70 people. And so we understand from that that the, uh, the number 70 here is not a mistake, it's not a spelling mistake. We also know that Stephen, who, was, who speaks in Acts 7, was a Hellenist, a, a Greek-speaking Jew. And we know that Greek-speaking Jews relied heavily on the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the, Old, of the Old Testament. And in the Septuagint, it is mentioned 75 people. So when Stephen speaks, he quotes the Septuagint saying 75 people. But that quotation is in scriptures. So it is inspired by the Holy Spirit. 
And so the same Holy Spirit who inspired the writing of Exodus here also inspired the writing of the book of Acts. And here he's giving us 70, there he's giving us 75. So we understand that both numbers are correct. Where does the difference come from? The difference comes from only the way of numbering. In the Septuagint, they certainly count more descendants of Joseph than is counted here. So both are, are correct. But you may wonder why such a big point with the, the number 70. Because 70 has great significance in Scripture. We know that 7 is the digit of perfection, and 10 is the number of fullness. And also in Genesis 10, after Babel, we had in the table of nations a total of 70 nations. And it is from those 70 initial nations that all the nations that we have today existing on earth come from. And so the Holy Spirit is telling here that he's telling two things, I would say. First, he communicates to us that the family of Jacob had reached the correct number for the next step of redemptive history. He also tells us that the family of Jacob was a microcosm of the world, a representation of all the families of the universe, and that what was then happening with that family had universal and cosmic impact. It was therefore not only about Jacob's family, but it was about the entire world. When we progress in our text, in the same verse, verse 5, we read that Joseph was already in Egypt. Here again, the author, the Holy Spirit, is pointing us to back to Genesis. Children, do you remember the story of Joseph, the account of his life? What happened to Joseph? Joseph was the preferred son of Jacob. Jacob loved him more than all his other children. And because of that, the brothers of Joseph were very jealous of Joseph. And Joseph also had dreams in which he was ruling over his brothers. And so his brothers even hated him more because they didn't want Joseph to rule over them. So what did they do? They conceived a plan in which they sold Joseph as a slave. But God was with Joseph and he found himself in Egypt. There in Egypt, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he had a dream. And the dream was announcing a famine that was to come. But he didn't understand the dream. And no one could tell him the meaning of the dream. But because 
God had given to Joseph the gift of interpretation of dreams. Joseph could interpret the dream of Pharaoh. And when he, interpret, he interpreted the dream of Pharaoh, he even also told to Pharaoh what Egypt should do in order to avoid the negative effect of the famine. And so Pharaoh was very pleased with Joseph. And so he made of Joseph a grand, the grand vizier over Egypt, a kind of prime minister over Egypt. And so later, when the famine started, as Joseph had, predi as Joseph had predicted, Canaan, the place where Jacob and the rest of the family of Joseph was living, was also affected. They didn't have any food. But Joseph then could invite them to Egypt because of his high position. And then they could avoid the calamity, the death that they would have faced if they had remained in Canaan. So with this, we reach the end of our first point. But one thing that we should retain is that our first point echoes Genesis. And when you put our first point, you look at it in, a, in the perspective of the history of redemption. You see how significant it is, because after our point, there will be a but. Our point starts with, uh, please, our point ends with, then Joseph died, verse 6, please. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation with him. And when you remember, Genesis started with life. God created everything, and everything was bursting with life. Then sin happened into the world. And when sin happened, came into the world, we had also death coming. And so that's why when you read sometimes the genealogies in Egypt, you have, uh, please, in Genesis, you have, and he died, and he died, and he died. So death was ruling over the entire human race. And here, the family of Jacob did not escape. Joseph also died. The great Joseph died, and the book of Genesis ends with that, the coffin of Joseph, with death. And the author here reminds us of that. So how to summarize our first point? In our first point, we saw that God brought Jacob's family to Egypt to preserve them from death and to accomplish the promise that he made to the patriarchs, meaning to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We also reminded ourselves of Joseph's role and saw how the family of Jacob was a microcosm, a small representation of all the families, the families of the earth. Now, we will see how that single family, how God transformed that family into a nation. And this will be our second point, to the nation of Israel. Verse 7. We read in verse 7 
that the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong that the land was filled with them. And so when you read in the Hebrew, you will realize that the author, the Holy Spirit here, is piling growth upon growth. They were fruitful, they increased, they multiplied. And also, the word that is translated and grew exceedingly can be also translated the swarm, the team, meaning they filled everything, a bit like in Genesis when God was creating. So we understand that the people of Israel grew very strong in number to the point that they fill the entire land of Goshen. Such a growth was not a natural growth. It was a supernatural growth that God was realizing with the family of Jacob. He was changing the family of Jacob, of the family of Israel, into the nation of Israel in line with the promises that he made to Abraham in Genesis again, when he was saying that Abraham will be the father of many nations. So the language that scripture uses here in verse 6, again, echoes Genesis 1. When God created, he commanded all animals, all creatures, to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth. And, uh, and so that's what he was now realizing here with the people of Israel. And so we see that between verse 6 and verse 7, we have a great contrast. We have verse 7 starting with the but. Because in verse 6, before 6, you had death prevailing. And from 7, the Holy Spirit wants to explain to us that there is a contrast. Now, God is bringing life in the midst of death. And so, the contrast also, this which the Holy Spirit establishes here between the family of Jacob and the rest of the families of the earth, meaning the contrast between life and death, can be also seen uh, in the church today. Why? Because such a contrast points to the, to the ultimate victory that the church will have over death in Christ. And it also points to the current role of the church in the world. What happened with the church currently in the world? Under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, the church shows the path of life. Every time that the word of God is preached, life is imparted to the elect of God's people. And every time that someone is saved, the kingdom of death decreases and the kingdom of life increases. And, we can, and even when you study history, you realize that wherever the church grows in influence, what happened? There is flourishing and life in abundance in the society. And so, and this is, 
even though the final consummation, consummation of our victory over death has not yet happened. But we are certain that we are already victorious over death. That's why even our catechism confesses that for us, the people of God, for us, the church, death is no longer a payment for sin, but an end to sin and entrance and an entrance into eternal life. So our text tells us a lot of things. And the more you meditate on this passage and this context, the more you see some glimpses of the marvelous wisdom of God. God does a million things in a single move. One might wonder, God made the world, the devil, wretched. He called Abraham and promised him a land. Now his descendants are resident alien in Egypt. What a sad situation. Why is that? But when you read, you realize that in the background, God is making wise moves. Think for a moment. What would have happened to the family of Jacob had they stayed in Canaan? They would have intermarried, and then what would have happened? The Canaanites would have assimilated them, and so they would have never been able to develop themselves as a distinct nation. And so all the promises that God made, first of all in the Proto-Evangelium, that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the snake, and that Abraham will be the head, the father of many nations, and that he will send the Messiah, all those promises would have not happened because they would have become Canaanites. And so we see that Egypt, even though it was a bad place, it was good for the people of God. It served as an incubator for them to multiply and become a distinct nation. So God was gracious to Jacob's family when he sent them to Egypt. The famine that happened was not mere happenstance. God was acting in his sovereign grace to form a people for himself, a royal priesthood, as we know today, through which he will fulfill the promises that he made to Abraham and also through which he will also fulfill the promise that he made to Adam and Eve in the garden. So, speaking differently, we could say that God sent Jacob's family to Egypt to prepare the terrain for Moses, Joshua, Gideon, David and Solomon, Daniel, and all those heroes of faith that we know, and ultimately for Christ himself. He was preparing the terrain through affliction for our redemption, for the redemption of the wretched sinners that we are. And in doing so, he was demonstrating an extremely great, deep, unfathomable wisdom. So we see that even with the second part of the text, we are again sent back to Genesis. So God, again, as a reminder, 
in fulfillment of the promises that he made to the people in Egypt. He was uh, pleased to the people in Genesis. He was multiplying the descendant of Jacob in Egypt, multiplying, multiplying them, filling the land of Goshen with his image bearers. And so you can understand when you, the imagery that the text wants to give us here when it multiplies fruitfulness upon fruitfulness, it's a bit like ants to illustrate. You can imagine a colony with many ants and many of them being very much busy working here and there for the development of the colony. This is a bit the imagery that the people of Israel had in Goshen, or were giving in Goshen. They were numerous, very dynamic, multiplying and developing their land. So God was not done with the family of Jacob, even when Joseph died. And we understand that death could not stop his work. And although death entered into the world through Adam and Eve, God continued to work in order to make his promises to pass. Dear congregation, do you see the great and wonderful God that we have? Someone who is continuously working, someone who, is, who remains faithful to his promises, to his plan in order to yeah, to, and he always accomplishes his purposes, no matter what happened. What do you think about such a God, such a heavenly Father? Don't you think that he's worthy of all our trust? Don't you think that he's worthy of all our adorations, that we should continuously be praising him? Who is like him? Are our idols like him? Because where does our lack of understanding of the faithfulness of God come from? It comes also in part from those idols who are speaking in our ears and telling them, us please, to trust them instead of trusting God. But those idols, what do they give? They do never, they never give us anything. They only take they say, oh, give me your life, give me your children, give me your sexuality, give me your time. And they, they lie to us saying, oh, you will have happiness, you will be happy. But at the end, what do they give? Nothing, just fleeting pleasures. But God is not like that. God is faithful. And from generations to generations, he remains faithful. So let us pray that the Lord Jesus Christ may work in our heart to deliver us from the grip of those idols. So we have been seeing the situation of our ancestors, the family of Jacob, and now we wonder how do we fit into this wonderful picture of God's work? And I think I have been already alluding to our place in the picture. But as we say, um, repetition is the matter of learning. So I will repeat. We are the spiritual descendants of Jacob. We have been incorporated into 
Israel through Christ. And the Holy Spirit wanted to preserve this record of God's faithfulness in order to encourage us, to make us realize how faithful our Heavenly Father has been to us. And when we think about this text, we also realize that we, as the church, are the unfinished fulfillment of those promises that were made many centuries ago to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. If you go on the internet and check, you will see that Christians are the most persecuted group over over the earth. But despite such a great opposition, what happened? The church is moving forward. And even though in some regions we we have the impression that the church is decreasing, globally the church is multiplying, God is working, assembling his elect from all nations and tongues. So, my dear people, let us be very careful when we complain to our Heavenly Father about our difficulties, our afflictions. Sure, we must turn to him with our burdens. He delights in helping those who rely on him. But we should do so with humility, understanding that he is infinitely wise beyond our understanding and that he can change darkness into light, death into life, just as he has been doing in our text. So we should know that the momentary afflictions that the church is facing currently will bring to the end a greater salvation, greater glory for the church. Those afflictions will not prevent God from accomplishing his plan, from gathering his people, and from multiplying his church. Now, what should be our response to such a great faithfulness? Should it be thankfulness? Yes. Obedience? Yes. Praise? Yes. But not only here at church or with our families at home. Everywhere we should be praising our Heavenly Father for His great wisdom, for His great faithfulness. All of St. Albert should know how wise and faithful our Heavenly Father is. Now, conclusion. What is the carry home message from our passage of this day? The Holy Spirit showed to us how God remained faithful to his people. He did so by reminding us of some events in our family, in Jacob's family. And the Holy Spirit also reminded us of how God moves Jacob's family, Israel's family, from Canaan to Egypt in order to save them miraculously from the famine that was to happen. And he shows that in doing so, God was accomplishing his promise to the patriarchs. We also saw that the church is the continuation of that work of faithfulness. Just like God multiplied his church in Egypt, because that was also the church 
He's multiplying the church today, working despite the persecution, the difficulties. So let us pray that God the Father, based on the work done by Jesus Christ, that he may open our eyes by his Holy Spirit, that he may open our eyes to his faithfulness. And let us pray that as a result of our understanding of that faithfulness, that we will trust him more and that we will be willing to praise him everywhere, talking of his faithfulness for all his elect to know him. Amen.